Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Brad. It's just me. How you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. Uh, you're always a, a pleasant surprise to see you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad to see you too. It's how you doing, Jim? I'm I'm doing great. I'm I'm double dipping. I got this second class in the same week. Well, good deal. <laughs> it may be repeat, but not necessarily. I, we'll see. I, we'll see what I, happens. I need a repeat. <laughs> Am I loud and clear, or you are? My wife always tells me I'm yelling up here, but I got these headphones <laughs> on, and I I can't hear myself. Hey, Jeff, good to see you. Good to see you too. Hello, how are you? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Jim. Hello. Nice to see you guys. It's been a while. Yeah. How are things up in Alberta? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a smoky summer. We've had uh, just smoke from wildfires for most of the summer. So mm. not great, but, you know, otherwise not too bad. How about you all? Brian has has moved, gotten a new job, raised a child <laughs> <laughs> since we met last. Fast track everything, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> No, my last, our last child graduated from high school at the same time we were moving from one city to the other, a couple hours away, buying a house, selling a house, fixing up both of them. Wow. (laughs) I think as long as you have children, life moves pretty quick. Things are always happening and we've empty nesters now for several years. And it's just amazing, the slow pace of... (laughs) Yeah, that we're not running somebody, you know, as a continual taxi service. So my oldest hey, Matt. Just, start, just started grade twelve, Brian. So I'm about to. Yeah, they're about to, they'll graduate at the end of this year, and I'll we'll see what it's like. <laughs> Is that your oldest, Jeff? My oldest, yeah, my oldest. Okay, so how many children do you have? I have six. Six. That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah. you're truly blessed. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Jeff, the class itself, I don't know if you've looked. I we're, we're using my book and Douglas Campbell. We're not going to use all of Douglas Campbell. <laughs> As I said last week, I don't think I'm using enough of Douglas Campbell to convince anybody of his argument. And so I'm afraid I'm doing him and everybody a disservice. You know, I like Campbell's argument about or his discussion about justification theory and conditional and unconditional. You know, he, I think we can all buy into that. And I really, it's almost ingenious. And I, I've done a two interviews, Matt, we, Matt and I interviewed him, Matt and John and I, right. And, yes. and then I had interviewed him by myself one time. And I mentioned that to him. I said, boy, you know, this opening of your book is just brilliant. And he said, yeah, that's not my stuff. Uh, he's He credited the Torrances. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, you know, who is it, Thomas Torrance, and then he had two, he has two sons. And so Campbell said, yeah, I that's straight from the Torrances. At one level, it looks fairly simple. This is the way that justification theory works but at another level it's it's great to have it laid out and see okay here are the implications and that's really what he's doing throughout his book first of all if you don't have any problems with conditional salvation you're not going to buy his argument you have no stake in his argument so the one thing he's doing is arguing for an unconditional salvation and of course what we might mean by that and how that's nuanced that we, that could mean a lot of different things and then the other thing that he's doing that i didn't buy i just found highly 
implausible. And that is really the first portion of his book. And it was not until I read the bulk of that that I was convinced. And I don't think anybody's going to be convinced. In other words, it's too much. Matt per can probably list all the ways that this is too much. Or Brian, anybody, any of you can. Matt, it, uh, what, what's the problem with accepting Douglas Campbell's theory of the teacher? Well, you know, this is the conversation that you and I and John were having today, um, you know, sort of offline about, um, you know, John was coming at it like, you know, this seems a little convoluted, right? Or, or forced to have to make this distinction between kind of like the rhetorical strategy that St. Paul is using that like, oh, how do you discern? Like, when is it Paul? When is it the teacher? When is it the Paul? So you got to kind of have like Douglas Campbell to like unlock the true meaning of, of Romans, which, but, you know, I was going back and forth with Jonathan, maybe the spirit's doing a new thing, you know, and, and, uh, uh you know, et cetera. But I, you know, I think that the, the thing that we were getting out that's actually really positive and I think much needed, especially in the Protestant world is the whole notion. And I think that's worthy of the unconditional love of God and talking about salvation, you know, not as an offer, but as a gift, that's already been given a fact, you know? Um, and I think that that already is a worthwhile endeavor for New Testament studies to make that distinction to say, well, you know, can on a, you could talk to any pastor and ask him like, so do you think that the love of God is, is, is unconditional? And you can kind of get a really good sense of like what they're really about. They say, yes, you know, but you know, dot, dot, dot. Right. Or if they just say, yes, you know, it's, it's unconditional. Um, so, I think that that's like a really worthwhile uh, endeavor, but, and to be honest, I haven't gone, you know, gone through the thousand page, you know, argument. And I don't know how many people are going to do that, but you know, the other thing is, is like, has any of the fathers who came before Douglas Campbell made this argument? I know John was looking into it and he really couldn't find too much. Um, I need to look at origin and his uh, commentary on Romans just to see kind of like what he's doing with it. But in other words, I just wondered if anyone has sort of noticed this rhetorical strategy that Paul is employing there. And if not, I mean, that doesn't make it a moot point. I'm not like a, you know, traditionalist in that sense. I, I don't care about that. But, you know, it does seem like they, those guys would probably know, right? Like they would say, oh, you know, this is like what's going on. And that's just not how we've read it. But I just think that we've gotten a lot of things probably, you know, that we've overlooked or misread or or whatever, and so we always need to do the work of theology to try to unpack what the Spirit is saying to the church in 2023, you know? But that just leaves up for debate, though. I don't know enough about the technical, you know, again, I just haven't read the whole book, so I feel like uh, inadequate or whatever to comment on that, but I don't know the nuances of the Greek enough to know, you know, is there a change in the voice and all this other stuff? But that's why we have guys like Douglas Campbell, right? So I'm willing to go along with him if that's what's going on. I just think that I do think that one of the positive things is, is if the teacher's voice is happening from what is it? 119 and forward or whatever and following right around there that it gets, it does sort of do away with some unpleasant maybe things, right. That we've attributed to St. Paul, you know, that he's going in on these particular sins and different things and, and, and different uncomfortable sort of positions like that is like a nice interpretive strategy right to say no that's actually the position of the teacher and i'm open to learning more about that you know but i and that's why i'm doing this class because i know you guys are unpacking it and to be honest i'm just i've not done a lot we have talked to douglas and i know he's well respected and of course you know new testament studies and a leader and all that stuff and i think people are taking his his work seriously and just in closing i would just say that hopefully the major takeaway though from his protestant readers and from his you know catholic and orthodox readers would be that reminder that god uh is it, it's i don't I guess I'm just to the point where I've accepted that the gospel is not necessarily just like an offer 
of the good news. It's a proclamation. It's a military, you know, sort of defeat. That it's an announcement in the sense that it's the good news that uh, it's the announcement that the archons uh, have been dethroned, uh, that sin and death have been dethroned by our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that those powers um, are are uh, have lost their you know their 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 power. Uh, because of Christ, and that the the gospel is an already accomplished fact. It's a gift that we do, in fact, have to receive in order to, you know, benefit from the gift. Just like any gift, right? You got to open it or whatever. You got to participate. You got to share in it, um, or otherwise, it's like a moot point. It's a gift that you just won't receive. But I just think that it's a it's already a huge step to say that no, the love of God is unconditional. God is love. There is no meriting there is no i gotta do this or i gotta do that or if i do this or if i don't do that that you know that no this thing is an unconditional accomplishment an already accomplished fact that um we can either share in and participate in or die you know and that that's kind of the gravity of paul's um gospel and i think that that's a really a worthwhile thing for any christian to work through i'm i'm open to his scheme of the teacher, Paul versus the teacher. I know there's evidence in other books that perhaps who's actually, you know, the scribe who's copying down is actually copying a discourse between Paul and he's doing this bit, sort of a dialectical process. But what I'll say is I think, I'm, I'm definitely with him on the point that I like how he names the issue of the traditional Protestant reading of Romans and soteriology as the justification theory of salvation. I think that's a masterful kind of way of saying, hey, this isn't actually just the fault of this thinker or that thinker. Uh, this is the theory that has been active. It's flawed. Here's why. Uh, he's obviously not the only person to be saying that. That part, I think, is the easiest to argue for. So he said, and he sets it up brilliantly. We didn't really read, at least in chapter one, he's not talking about how he's getting there yet. He just sets up, here's the problem with the justification theory of salvation. Totally agree with him. Uh, that would be most patristic theology just never thinks that way, for one. And then, you know, there are definitely different concepts of thinking about what's going on there. It seems to me like he said, oh, that's really good. I'm not for sure if it's as obvious that his explanation of why that's the case. In other words, there are plenty of people who have read Romans or thought about the New Testament in conversation with systematic theology and have said justification can't be the main thing. So, for example, some folks have said what ends up, and he, he alludes to this, what ends up happening is you have Luther make this point so strongly and so powerfully that it's faith by justification alone, uh, or justification by faith alone, rather, that from then on, when people turn to biblical studies, they match biblical studies to Luther's assertion, and where you end up is only Romans, Galatians, and 1 Corinthians, maybe 1 Thessalonians, or Pauline, everything else. Who knows? And so a lot of people have said, well, you only say that if you start out by uh, justification by faith alone is the point you have to make everything follow. And instead, uh, if you would, for example, think that, you know, perhaps Ephesians, that, that cluster that is Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, may even be as early or earlier than some of this other writing, it is for sure Pauline, then you get the cosmic view. And I appreciate his point also that, well, neither the people taking the cosmic view or the mystical Christ view, uh, nor the traditional Protestant view, neither of them can explain everything. And so you're left with this problem. But it seems to me like he's hit on something that is is very compelling and now is trying to come up with an original explanation for why that should be the case. And I haven't, uh, my, my biggest question just lingers like, where's the cue? So if you're just reading the Greek in Romans chapter 1, there is no cue to tell you that, oh, now Paul's talking in a different voice. 
So even as I was flipping ahead and reading through some of Campbell's points on that, he's just saying, well, ancient people are accustomed to this. This seems to make sense of everything, but there's no grammatical cue. So how do you know? Um, and if it's obvious in the Greek, why do none of the Greek fathers pick up on this? It doesn't, it seems like they're able to explain Romans, but the way they do it is um, they, they just never have this issue of justification to begin with. It was never the idea. So they don't see the problem anyway of making everything cohere. But that seems almost like a little bit of a stretch or maybe like he's, that seems to be the part of the argument that is trying the hardest. Whereas his points about justification, are uh, that makes a lot of sense. And you can just make that point by the way he does it in chapter one, by saying the people that did this created a historical problem that could not explain what the New Testament as a whole is saying, uh, where these so-called deuteropauling books come from, or why they're so vastly different. If they're trying to be in Paul's voice, that doesn't make sense either, uh, et cetera. Yeah, good, good points. And I don't have, uh, I wish I could say, oh, well, so-and-so, you know, where, where did Campbell get this? Is it original? Certainly justification theory, as we have it from Luther, yeah. creates a reading that poses this problem. And so it may be for the last 500 years, nobody said this. But maybe nobody needed to say it before then. I don't know. Because if you're an Eastern Christian, you had an understanding of a universal one. And this is kind of what we've kind of prepared for this class in our class on Ephesians, which is part of Campbell's argument. You know, not in this book, but in other arguments. Well, actually, if you want to go to Paul's gospel, go to Ephesians. He says, even if it's not written by Paul, he says, it's still Paul's gospel. But he thinks it's probably... You know, he, he sees no reason that it's not written by Paul. And, and just to, that. I mean, that's the current, that's been sort of this post-new perspective on Paul's shift, is to say, well, hold on a second. We were discounting all of these things, but we were only doing that because we were so tied to the justification theory of salvation. There's no other reason, there is no other good reason to say it's not Pauline. And yeah. so... I, I mean, I, I totally, I, I, I like that term. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's very compelling. I just think it's it's almost very neat what he does here because he takes the most difficult passages of Romans to explain and says, oh, that's not actually Paul. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's helpful. Uh, in other words, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't buy it. I, I'll admit, I was where you are. I thought, nah, that's too, that's too, too much. But, I did find his argument compelling. And, find his conclusion compelling. Yeah. So I may be doing an injustice to Campbell, but I don't know how else to do it. And I we can't read his whole book for an eight week class. You know, this is a two year long class. To, <laughs> uh, in other words, I think part of it is finding the argument compelling, and the place that you do that is actually skipping over one to four entirely and going to five to eight. Because 5 to 8 seems to be, well, there's the center of Paul's gospel. A 5 to 8 stands over against 1 to 4. And so next week, what I'll try to do is make the argument. I'll just compare the two. In other words, what, we, we're, what we're setting up is two alternative readings, not just of Romans, but of the Bible. <laughs> really. There's nothing that's going to be left out of this. I think chapter 7 is very telling. Because chapter 7... Some people want to read this according to justification theory, and I think it's a travesty. I think it's just terrible. On the other hand, if we read it with what Campbell has in mind, oh, suddenly there is no other way to read chapter 7. Well, I see that's interesting because both 6 and 7 have hints, maybe even 5. You have hints of, like, this is not actually what I'm saying, right? In Romans 7... Who shall set me free from this body of death? Like, you know, what he's saying before that is not his ideal. Uh, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May, you know, God forbid. There's clues, it seems like, that more is going yeah. on. Whereas in, like, chapter 1, 
it just con uh, continually repeats the conjunction gar well for this because of this because of this uh okay well that doesn't lead me to think that you've got two views going on here chapters one to three or chapters one to four are filled with quotations mm -hmm. sure even all of us can see there are spaces where he's clearly posing an argument refuting an argument in a small space but I think the, the thing that, and you're right, the thing that is hard to get, yeah, but you're saying all of 118 to 32 is in the voice of the teacher. And in, Campbell in that, is... And that would be uh, the most convenient thing. That would yeah. be the most convenient passage of the whole New Testament to say, that's not really Paul. I think it's not. I'm convinced it's not. You know, he is tying it in to... The wisdom of Solomon, he is, in other words, this false teacher has, we're not in the position, this is Campbell's argument, of the Romans who know the false teacher. They know what he's saying. And so when Paul's quoting him, they recognize. Well, I mean, you could say, how do you know that? <laughs> how do you know that? Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that is the iffy, you've hit upon it. And I would guess that's what most people are going to object to. In Douglas Kim. That's what I objected to. I still liked his book before. Still has a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't think Paul would say, <laughs> once you know what Paul's gospel is from other places, right? Would Paul say the sorts of things that are being said in these open, you know, and I think that's part of the weight of it is what is Paul's gospel? Well, go to Ephesians. Yeah. <laughs> and see how that compares with uh, Romans 1 to 4. I think that's part of the argument, but it's also there in Romans that he's doing the same thing in Romans 5, 6, and 8. Curiously, that's exactly what Campbell's arguing against doing, is that's that he's saying people have identified, oh, this is Paul's gospel. Right, Anything right, that right. doesn't fit that is right, right, right. forced into this box. He's right. doing that from, anyway, it's, yes, I it's, it, there is an argument about Paul's gospel. That's that's what's up for contention here. Is it justification by faith? Is it Luther and Calvin? And then he does a, a huge work, again, I can't claim to have read it, reframing Paul, in which he sets up a whole different construct for Paul's letters of the New Testament. And, and so it is. Yeah, you're right. He's doing the same thing. And I think he would admit that. Yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I'm understanding one through four is kind of a scaffolding which Paul is putting up before he builds or constructs his actual gospel. I'd say it's slightly different, and that makes the argument even stronger. That is that in one to three, he's not building a scaffolding. He's building a scaffolding and tearing it down at the same time. So he's saying, oh, the teacher says this. And then he'll say things that are contradict that. So okay. one to three, even within itself, or one to four, how you know, it doesn't hold together as a scaffolding because there are contradictory things. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. What advantage the Jew? And then the false teacher says, Well, we have the very oracles of God. Is Paul saying we have the very oracles of God? Is Paul saying we're judged by works of the law? Which is part of the argument being presented there in 118. Does Paul believe that there's two laws? So you're sort of following his editing process. Yeah, that as we get into it, we'll try to do it in more detail. And maybe we need to do a more micro level to see there, I mean, there are obvious places where nobody questions Paul's in having a dia, a, in a dialectic. He says, he'll say this, and then he says, you know, God forbid. <laughs> so some places it's obvious. So that by chapter 3, he's tearing down the scaffolding completely that has been constructed in portions of chapter 1 and 2. The other thing I might mention is that Paul is dealing with a false teacher, but he's also dealing with the Romans' understanding of the gospel 
and trying to move them along. In other words, Paul's gospel is going to be probably more radical than what they're used to hearing. They haven't met Paul. They don't know about, you know, as far as we know, his gospel. And so it may be even that the Romans have a very, uh, in chapter 3, he talks about the propitiation of Christ. Campbell's argument, and I think, and actually this is not just Campbell, that probably many early Christians did not have Paul's understanding of the atonement. They're trying to work out the meaning of the atonement, and they're working it out and saying, well, you know, they are talking about it, that we, you know, talking about it in terms of a kind of Christ has paid the penalty. There may be some of that language there. And we find about five places, and one of them is here in Romans chapter 3, where he seems to be quoting what is probably their gospel understanding. He's not refuting it so much as he's saying, let's go beyond this. And that's part of this argument, too. Jeff, I hope we haven't left you in the dark here. Are you? I'm going to go through and explain exactly what Campbell's doing. But I kind of want to put all the objections up front because I didn't I didn't buy it. You know, it, it, it is such a huge argument. And there's so many reasons that it can't be the case. <laughs> and so so I, all I can say, I don't think I'll convince if if anybody's on the fence on this, I don't think this class <laughs> is going to be enough. But I hope that in the class, what we can do is put forward what, you know, I think Paul's gospel is unconditional. We need to say, what are the implications of that? And what does that look like? But Brian, let me ask you, I know you don't buy it. L tell Jeff why this, why okay. are you not buying it? Well, I want to say that I, I, I'm in, this, in the phase where I've suspended judgment about it because I'm listening and I'm not, not against wholesale, but I guess I'm suspicious or um, unsure about the proposal. And a part of that's because I, I haven't read much at all, much less you know extensively into the, into the argument. But... As I listened to it and sort of listened to, I listened to both of the interviews from 2019 and from 2020 where John and Matt were with you, Paul. And I listened to a couple of others I found online and read a little bit. And, you know, I don't think he ever tries to begin to really lay it out because it's too much to say. But that may have been our fault. I, as I think back on the interview, we should have probably, if I had been better informed, I would have asked him specifically. I now have questions I'd like to ask him. But anyway, go ahead. I was just thinking the same thing. I wish I would have known then what we know. And he might come back on. You know, we could say, hey, we could just ask him. The way it hits me is certainly I'm right there with him theologically for the reasons why it would be, I guess I'll use the word convenient. <laughs> you know, and it would make sense in light of what we know about Paul's gospel and the revelation in Christ from from other other work other books, but I just don't know enough to see it yet. And since I don't see it yet, um, there's lots of things that don't make sense if I'm just reading it. It just seems too elaborate to be true because I know that Paul does this at different times and different different places and the rhetorical devices a standard even across the, the corpus but for it to encompass so much of that epistle um, without it ever being seen before or, or commented on in that way is one red flag for me but then I also think is it necessary because and, and that kind of tables whether or not there's evidence for it, which I'd like to look into, and this class won't cover it completely, but I'm committed to suspending judgment as long as I need to. This is a, this is a slow burn, 
this is a long haul. This is a lifelong journey for us to discern atonement theories and to discern where Christendom has gone wrong. Uh, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of recognition that Augustine and Luther aren't perfect. <laughs> and they're not, we, we can't take for granted that they were reading things right, like Romans 5 or the whole contractual view of justification. But I wonder, as I read Romans, if it is possible that Paul was, in those first three chapters, laying out just what was conventional wisdom, and that wasn't ne- it wasn't necessary, necessarily a false teacher's words, but just conventional wisdom, and therefore not such a pointed dismissal of of it but if you just read it like it's you know like we would read it anyway um to sort of see what he's doing i've always heard that romans is like a almost like a legal you know apart from it being a a legal theory of the atonement a sort of legal brief to to really lay out at that level of detail knocking down arguments that are part of conventional wisdom whether from the jew jewish or the gentile view of things he does that in the three chapters and the things that he says in there are not i'm wondering if necess- if they're necessarily so contrary to broad traditional wisdom that it would be necessary to assign it to a false teacher that they could be false and they could be you know bland sort of overgeneralizations about the way God works that are just conventionally taken to be true and of course they're conventionally taken to be true today maybe and that's part of the trickiness of it is how do we sort that out this is scripture we're talking about right but I think there's some room I mean I'm kind of learning to read scripture with the the Christological lens and the focus of the revelation of Christ being what interprets everything, old and new, the gospel itself, the the revelation of who Jesus is, God and man, that if you take that first and look at the gospels and even look at and, and look at Romans, that the interpretation of it all um, has to has to account for some amount of error or imprecision about what's true about God in order to make a larger point about Christ tells us everything we need to know about God. That's where I am. Paul, I'm just, I don't want to take us too far off, but I'm, I'm just uh, wondering, in our conversations, I can definitely see Paul employing this rhetorical strategy in the sense that he clearly does later on, right, where he's raising the question, well, should we, you know, continue to sin so that grace may abound? Of course not. Like that's clearly what he's doing there. And so I'm wondering with your work, you know, with Zizek and others, right? In other words, I could see Paul sort of imagining an archetypical, you know, false teaching that's going to be pervasive, uh, no matter where anybody's coming from theologically, because these are always going to be the this is always going to be the perspective of the false gospel. In other words, like what Paul there is doing, he's laying out that we're all under sin and we're all under death. That's clearly like what's happening there. That's key. That's key, right? So that this false teacher or any false teacher who would follow in his footsteps are always going to tend towards this type of uh, epistemology, this sort of ontology, this sort of whatever you want to call it, ethnicity. He's going through all the different things. And as you've shown in your work with Zizek, that Paul is the apostle precisely because he's able to raise the question. Uh, he's what, you know, Zizek calls a hysteric in that sense, right? That he can, he's able to see through the the law and kind of into the heart of the false teacher in order to raise the questions for him, like almost in, in anticipation of the perverse understanding of the gospel. So in that sense, you know, maybe I could see Paul employing that strategy, but so you can comment on that, but I also wanted to ask you, what was there a particular epiphany? Was there a particular thing where it hit you and you said, oh, I think Douglas Campbell might be right about this because of this key insight that really does seem to unlock the case that he's making for, you know, like what Brian was saying about 
not just the unconditional nature of of the gospel, uh, but how did he put it? You know, he said that he was basically saying that it's either an already accomplished fact that Paul is proclaiming this. I know this is what you guys are saying and teaching or going to teach in the future or going to think in the future. But let me just go ahead and anticipate all those different arguments. I know that this is my magnus, my magnum opus. I know that this is where I'm really going to lay out this whole thing, both psychologically, theologically. You know, Paul, you've always been looking for more of an answer to the Roman 7 problem. That's a key thing because you're saying that that's in the, the false teacher's, not the false teacher's voice, but in sort of a different voice than just St. Paul's. So you've always been looking for that sort of, um, y- you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, method. I'm just wondering if there was one particular thing or if it was just the whole mountain of evidence or what. You seem I'm, convinced. I don't know if that's true or not. but Yeah, 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 I'm convinced. And in fact, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to see it differently. But I, I understand I'm in a place, I'm not going to try to convince anybody. But what I would like, I hope that we can agree is the nature of Paul's gospel. And so I think that's step one. What is Paul's gospel? And where we're, you know, this is the way that Campbell lays it out. And actually, Jeff, I've restructured the whole class. I don't know if you've been in there, but uh, we're just, we're focused on one to eight. We'll, we'll do one to eight, and then the last week we'll do the rest. <laughs> so in five, six, and eight, I think we encounter the heart of the book of Romans. And here is Paul's teaching. Here's what Paul believes. But whatever we're going to do, I don't think four is actually problematic. But whatever we're going to do with one to three, I hope that by the end of the class, we can grasp the center of Paul's gospel. And I believe it is unconditional. And by saying that, it's not like I've said everything. That needs explanation. So that, that I think, Matt, is step one. And step two, then, is to go through, as Campbell does, I'll, I'll do this here in a minute, and go through and talk about the implications of conditional and unconditional. What we're going to see is that these are opposites in terms of who God is, the basic system that we're a part of, is it retributive? The basic anthropology, epistemology, and even then atonement. You know, there's nothing that is not at stake in getting the heart of Paul's gospel. So if nothing else, I hope that we can, you know, it's that's what I want to focus on. I think that to be convinced by Campbell, you got to read Campbell. I am guilty like everybody else. I said, oh, he's got some good ideas. And then I was dismissive without having thoroughly read him. And so that's fine, you know, if you want to dismiss him. It's too counter to what we've heard. So what his method is, is to just go through and show point by point you know, he, he is doing this at a micro level and showing that, in fact, you can trace the different voices and the different logic and that that becomes clear. And so it is, I think, at one level, it's macro. It, it is an understanding of conditional and unconditional and how those logics are in contrast. At another level, it's micro. And it's a point-by-point argument. And that's why the book is a thousand pages. Because he cannot make this argument. In other words, it's such a huge argument that I think he knew coming into it that it would have to be argued at, at a micro level. I'm happy everybody wants to object and dismiss it because I was there. I wanted to ask you, Paul, if you had any... Um comment on the sort of parallel and maybe they're the same thing uh, for 
the way that Paul slips into the voice he does in Romans 7. Yes. Along with the, you know, 1 through 3. I mean, do you see yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Very similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a whole chapter. Yeah. So if yeah. you've got a problem with Paul speaking in a different voice, <laughs> well, wait a minute. We all know, you know, that he's speaking, or most all know that he's speaking. Not everybody knows that. By the way, Brian, you said a very important thing, and I didn't want to let it go. And that is that uh, in these first chapters, Paul is doing two things in these opening, in, in Romans, but especially in these opening chapters. One thing, he's refuting this false teacher, I believe. But you know the way that he's doing that, he's at the same time, the reason this false teacher is you know, successful in Rome and that the Romans are vulnerable is because they don't know Paul's gospel. Mm. I mean, that's what he says. You know, I want to come and tell you my gospel. And there, here is my In other words, they don't know Paul's gospel. And so in 3.23 to 26, he gives a little atonement theory, and he re references sins. As Louis Martin says, Paul never talks about sins in the plural except in about five places in his accepted corpus. Otherwise, he always talks about sin in the singular. And when he's using the plural, He's quoting someone. In other words, he's repeating, in this instance, what the Romans, and maybe, you know, that, that we have similar instances in Corinthians and other places, when Paul seems to be referencing their understanding. And actually, there may be several places. You know, I like that idea. There may be several places in this opening chapter that, He's referencing, you know, that, oh, we all know that it's through works of the law that we'll be justified. We all know that it's through good deeds that we'll receive rewards. Yeah, but then he says, and we all know that ain't true. <laughs> In other words, just boom, 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 he says those things. So who's saying that? In, in a sense, it could be what you're saying. That may be not just the false teacher. In other words, the false teacher is clearly a Judaizer. They're probably not that far gone, but they have an understanding of the atonement that is very flat, that Christ died to take care of our transgressions, past transgressions. And so he's going to take them for what they know, and he's going to build upon what they know, and present his gospel. So I think that, in fact, may explain a lot. Uh, it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain just the out-and-out -out contradictions in 1 to 3. That, and, and I think we need to take that into account. Jim, I, I let everybody uh, speak their piece. How are you feeling about Campbell's understanding? My first thought is... I've had a suspicion, like when you hear somewhere in the house, you hear a floorboard squeak, and you wonder if someone's in the house. I've heard, I've been hearing these floorboards squeak in my uninformed intuition about conditional uh, playbook. I almost said game, but I don't want to use that word. But I never um, was able to anchor it. For what it's worth, I haven't heard sermons that yielded insight to the unconditional so i've i guess i've had a kind of a mix inside hoping that there is something that i had a, hoping those squeaky floorboards wasn't a larger person of christ and i could pick up through the conditional process but not being able to it's kind of like driving through a snowstorm in your car i'm at the point now i can i can pick up the side of the road you know, I feel like I'm, I've got some orientation starting, especially the day I, I did a listen to the uh, podcast, Conditional Unconditional. And I gave, I gave myself some time to tease that out. Really helped me get a toehold uh, when Paul says, when you mentioned Paul, or maybe in combining with the last class, 
Paul, his his mind was clicking along great as he was, you know, capturing these Christians. Then I don't know what chapter or he says I was captured in this, and I didn't even know it. He, his own understanding when he was a Pharisee, he had a clear conscience. He had a a robust conscience in some people's description. Yeah. So I feel I feel like there's some wind. I feel like I'm picking up some wind. I'm. I like to sail, so I feel like there's some wind in my sail a little bit as far as like having a perspective on Romans, a better perspective than I've ever had. Because I've, I've seen it used, you've heard of the Roman road, people will like corner someone and take them down the Roman road and just guilt them into confession. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I, I felt like I should be able to do that, but I've never stepped across the line and forced myself to memorize all those verses and you know repeat them to someone and i've had some guilt <laughs> with that yeah you gotta you gotta learn to maneuver these people so they don't have any choice <laughs> so what i should do is pull pull down our class on ephesians and flip through some of those pages it has to tie in with romans absolutely absolutely and that was kind of, Jeff, last week I, I said that if you want to see, you want to go right to Paul's gospel. We already did that with Ephesians. There's Paul's gospel. Not that it's absent in Romans, it's just that in Ephesians, that seems to be his purpose, and that's Douglas Campbell's point. Just wondering, it's uh, this seems like enormously complicated, right? And of course, I mean, that's just theology, That's that's how it is, but... Um, on, on the other hand, it's like I the gospel now that we understand it is fairly simple. You know, yes. not to, not to, but it's it's that is is that the problem is uh, death and its contagion of sin, and uh, you know that that's why Christ came was that God sent Christ to reveal Himself to who He truly is and His love for us to redeem us from death and save the cosmos or whatever you know and it's like so that has taken a long time for us to get i guess to that simpler you know way of explaining it but um i'm just wondering is it either a paul is just arguing in a voice that in the you know 21st century we just don't we don't recognize we don't understand the strategy we don't understand that that's just how they did it back then maybe you know but it seems so complicated that but on the other hand is it that actually what's going on is that the false teachers would always complicated it simply by making that one simple move of basically saying that the love of god god who is love is actually conditional on god's side in other words what we would always do is make the mistake to it's i've come to understand that the gospel is only conditional on the human side right in other words we can refuse the gift but the gift is nonetheless always already being shared and so you know it's not the it, it, the love of god is conditional god doesn't change god is perfect he loves humanity with an absolutely perfect love and nothing that human beings can do, we can't do anything about that. We can't change it. We can't make God love us less or more because he loves us with a perfect love, right? But that, that's what we would always do. In other words, we would exchange that unchanging love of God for some sort of, oh, I know what it was earlier, Brian, that I was spacing on, the contractual, you know what I mean? In other words, God, whenever he saved us, he didn't write up a contract. He demonstrated his love in Jesus Christ and die for the sins of the world and said here you go i just saved you you know but what human beings would always want to do is legalize it you know codify it make it into a law then god gets obscured um and paul that could be precisely what paul is anticipating that wait a minute what you guys are always going to do is trade the pure gift the goodness and beauty and truth of Christ and the resurrection um, that we just call grace in a bunch of different ways, you know, but actually anytime we're saying grace, it's almost like another name for God. You know what I mean? It's like, what else do we mean? Right. But 
in other words, that these teachers would always complicate. They would say, well, you got to get circumcised. Or they'd say, well, you, but no, you got to eat with, you know, these certain ways. Or um, no, you got to believe in uh, that only some people are saved and not always people are, you know, all the people are saved. In other words, they would add some element into the purity of the crystal clear love of God that's unconditional. And they would, and Paul and other writers say, so the people would follow after them right that they would introduce some sort of variable to what i've just described right here and introduce some sort of now this can get tricky right for even like orthodox christians it's like well wait a minute what about baptism don't we have to be baptized or wait a minute don't you have to take holy communion or wait a minute don't you have to go to confession in other words right you got to do what you got to believe right and so we would say yeah you got to receive the gift and there is there's ways that the church is given where like you officially go about it you know what i mean but does that mean that the the love of god on his side remember he's unchanging he's perfect in his being there's nothing that humans can do this is the great mistake of hegel right that god is not the love of God is not predicated upon his creatures. God doesn't become, you know, God doesn't have to have any human input. He, in fact, does not have any, you know, creaturely input into his being. But it seems like this is what all these false teachers are always going to introduce into the equation, where it's in some way, actually, you know, this whole thing depends upon you and your quote-unquote free choice, or this whole yeah. thing just depends. Right, so in other words, I can just keep saying this a million different ways, but you get what I'm saying. I wanted to com comment, Matt. You you said something, and I'm I'm afraid I'll my mind is slipping so quick. That what I part of what I did today on my blog, you said, well, this false teacher, you know, Paul seems to be uh, presenting, I think, precisely what sin is and how what you're describing works. And by the time we get to chapter 8 in Romans, and we look back, I think we can recognize if we've held to this false teacher, or if even, you know, if uh, at least portions of 1 to 3, by definition, this law-based kind of understanding is what Paul is going to say is the sin problem. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org